Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Tony Ayres. You may not know his name, but you'll certainly know his work. The Slap, Wanted, Glitch, Nowhere Boys, The Family Law, Barracuda, Seven Types of Ambiguity, The Devil's Playground, The Home Song Stories, the list goes on. But his current hit is Stateless, co-created and produced with Kate Blanchett. Tony's an Emmy, BAFTA, AFI and actor winner. Certainly one of Australia's most prolific writers, producers and directors and one of the nicest guys in the biz. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Tony Ayres. Tony Ayres, good morning. Hey Lee, how are you? (laughs) I'm good, thanks. Nice to see your face. It's like, wow, we've been living virtually in the same suburb for about six months. (laughs) Yeah. What's weird with now is that you could be basically either across the road or on the other side of the world and it doesn't make a difference, you know, you're still communicating via Zoom. That's right. And the trippy thing is I've kind of been living the festival of Tony for the last sort of month or two because I knew we were going to be having a chat. So, I've been watching your back (laughs) catalogue with you in the next suburb, but kind of like, oh, I'd love to go and chat now. But anyway, there you go. Hey, um, Kate and I have really enjoyed catching up on some of your movies and some of your TV shows. In particular, we just watched the Home Song Stories again, and it kind of blew our mind. Yeah, I mean, that was like a a long time ago, 2007, I think. And uh, yeah, no, it was such a privilege to be able to make that film. Yeah, Joan Chen, I mean... Honestly, it's an extraordinary performance and, I mean, really, the film, it's a masterpiece. Well, Joan is one of the most amazing actresses I've ever worked with and certainly um, I was completely besotted with her (laughs) during the course of making the film. She's so smart. She's a director herself and so she had a lot to say about the character and my relationship to the character was a bit like a therapy session because, you know, she played my mother. <laughs> and um, uh, But what was amazing about her was that she played the same person, but she did something different in every single scene. Like she had these subtle um, variations on who she was and her take on the character. And it, it was really, you know, it, it was just a joy to watch. It was a masterclass. Wow, that's that's wonderful. For those who haven't seen the movie, would you mind giving us a little bit of the background because it is based on your own life story and give us some insights into, you know, how you ended up in Perth in Australia having been born in Macau and um, what your mum did for a living and just, just some insights because that film, when we have a sort of an understanding of that film, it's then interesting to see how your life has played out um, as it has. Okay, so the Home Song Stories is set in the final year of my mother's life. Um, and it's, it's basically the story of my mother, my sister and I, um, and how we got to Australia. My mother married an Australian sailor, William George Ayres. I mean, all the names are changed in the movie for legal reasons, but, you know. Yeah. 
uh, he was my stepfather and um, and then kind of left him soon after we got to Australia and we spent our, you know, my sister and I spent our childhood in the back of Chinese restaurants because she was part of that sort of Chinese restaurant world in Melbourne. And um, she was a very beautiful, uh, glamorous and kind of unstable character, you would say. Um, she, yeah. she was very charming. She used to, you know, like whenever we went to a Chinese restaurant, whether she knew people or not, she would just march straight into the kitchen and start a conversation with um, whoever was there. Uh, and, you know, because she had been a nightclub singer in Shanghai and then in Hong Kong and Macau, and, you know, like I was born in Macau, she, you know, was very comfortable with people, you know, and she made people feel at home. And she kind of, um, she charmed everyone she met, but she also had another side to her, which was very unstable. And I mean, I think there was a lot of her own trauma, which she had never processed, you know, being a woman of her generation and sort of mental health issues, which were undiagnosed. And so she was also quite uh, suicidal. And so the film is really about this extraordinary story where my mother had a lover when I was about 11 years old and uh, he fell in love with my sister. And um, and that led to some fairly uh, tragic uh, circumstances, which is what the movie is about. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks for, for sharing that. As I was going through it, you kind of reminded me of um, a swimmer or, a, or an athlete who maybe has asthma or something as a kid and they've got this adversity to overcome and then, the, you know, the doctor or the parents say, hey, why don't you go and learn to swim? And, you know, that might improve your breathing. And then, you know, five years later, they're winning a gold medal and, you know, they're the best swimmer in the world. And with you, you know, this adversity and the, you know, challenges – you launched into comics and reading and making up stories and I guess in time, you know, you became a master storyteller. I guess the thing that, you know, being a bit older now and reflecting back upon the relationship between childhood trauma and creativity, um, I could say that one of the things that you could do as a child, you know, in a situation where, where the world was pretty uncontrollable was to actually create narratives. And I used to go to bed at night sort of basically making up stories that were always superhero stories or martial arts movies or, or sort of things that I was kind of into as a kid. But it was always... Um, about being able to control the narrative, being able to control what happened and sort of somehow coming out a victor in that, like being the hero in that. And um, when, you know, the real life just couldn't let that happen, you know, like I was dealing with all this shit when I was a kid or dealing, not dealing with it. And I think that, you know, it was, a, a, you know, my response was to try to recreate a world where I, I could be in control. And then that sort of became a, a reflex or a, or a habit, you know, like basically um, 
taking life stories, taking things from life and then turning them into uh, some kind of narrative form. And I mean, it's probably the thing that I learnt from my childhood, which has served me best as a kind of creative artist, you know, like, so even to this day, if I sort of hear a story or um, see something on the news or, you know, read an article, um, my first reflex is to then go, oh, well, if I was turning that into a story, like into a narrative, what would I do? How would I do that? And yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's made me both creatively resilient and also prolific, you know, like so. So you know, like it seems as though that there is no end to the kind of material that you can create or that is meaningful to me. Because you know, like I'm just you know, all I have to do is really respond to the world, and then an idea emerges of you know, yeah, uh, in the form of you know, how, how do you tell that story? And also, you know, you, you just learn how to um, make narratives happen. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the superhero thing as well because after having watched a heap of your stuff over the last few weeks, it's apparent that you generally approach pretty intense subject matter but you find the humanity in in it and it's actually uplifting in the end as well, which is, you know, you you don't really take the victim route as it goes through. (laughs) And and to do that um, with that subject matter, with the light touch that you have is really impressive and as a director, I... I admire that because, you know, everyone's seeking truth in performances and storytelling. I mean, it's like, a, you know, people just rattle that off as though, oh, yeah, you click your fingers and there's a truthful performance or storytelling. We know it's there's a lot of moving parts and it's hard to bring everything to the, to the boil together at the same time and deliver that on screen. So... Good job, mate. You've done some... <laughs> you've got some fine work there. And also... Some of the films you've made are films that I might kind of go, oh, oh, that's going to be too heavy. I don't feel like that now. I just want, you know, something light, you know, a bit of escapist stuff. But then I watch your things and it, it's done in such a light way that I have such empathy for the people and the situation and it feels really familiar even though it might be, a, you know, a minority group or, you know, um, fringe people that I, I haven't spent much time with or whatever. So, yeah, beautifully done on that. I, I guess my interest is, all, you know, because I grew up as an outsider, like I was like this gay Chinese kid in, you know, in the suburbs of Perth and, you know, just really felt like an outsider. Um, yeah. I've always been drawn to those sort of stories, like telling those stories, you know, it's just how I am emotionally constituted. But as you develop skills as a filmmaker, what you learn to do is find ways to take any narrative and then connect an audience to it. So I, I, I sort of see a lot of what I do is just kind of finding stories that I like and then trying to work out ways in which I can make an, an audience experience these things. And and I think the value of it is to try to create a sense of a shared humanity or, you know, like... I think as filmmakers, we have a very powerful weapon, which is um, point of view. You know, like we can make an audience kind of live in the, the uh, perspective of someone who maybe they normally don't sort of know or understand, or we can 
create shared experiences. And, and we're kind of used to doing that, you know, like just watching um, something on screen. You know, I mean, it's always an act of, you know, you just go into the point of view of the central character and you live the story through their experience of it. And so, you know, I think that what I do is exactly the same, except for, you know, like often there are characters who an audience may not have experienced before. And I think that's a very, for, for me, it's a, it's both a powerful act and it's a compassionate act. And, and in that sense, it's kind of political insofar as it, it makes it, you know, possible for you to understand a common humanity, you know, like you look for the kind of truths that we share. And, you know, I think the world is very polarised and, it, you know, people don't stray outside their own silos very much these days. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, so what we can do as dramatists is, you know, offer other perspectives on life. Yeah, absolutely. Very powerful tool and medium, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, um, just tell me a little bit about living out the back of the Chinese restaurant because I remember as a kid, you know, growing up, we'd always, you know, it was always a big deal to go out to dinner at the Chinese restaurant, but it was always fascinating. I was like the classic Sydney middle class, white, you know, lower North Shore kind of vibe and we'd go to the exotic Chinese restaurant or we'd go into Chinatown and it was awesome. But I would, I'd, I'd look at the kids, the family would come out, the mum would be there, the whole thing. Um, just tell us a little bit about life in the back of a Chinese restaurant back at that time. Well, this was uh, in the late 60s and, um, you know, the Chinese community was always very um, hermetically sealed as far as I kind of understood it. Like, they were predominantly Cantonese, and my mother was Han Chinese, so she was from mainland China, um, from North, whereas the Chinese restaurant owners were predominantly from Hong Kong or Guangzhou, and they had their own culture. You know, it was, uh, I remember in Perth, there was Chinese movies at the Rockabee Cinema in Subiaco every Sunday night at eight o'clock at night. And I used to go to those Chinese movies because they were sword fighting movies. And it was where all the Chinese restaurant people used to gather around. It was their, you know, their kind of social night and everyone knew each other. So it was its own world. And I mean, weirdly enough, I mean, my sister and I and my mother were a bit of you know, we were kind of outsiders to that world as well because because they were sort of Cantonese speaking. Yeah. You know, it was hilarious because there was the Australian menu and then there was the Chinese menu. And my mother would always say, I don't want what the Australians are having, but, you know, what's on your Chinese menu? And I'm not sure if you ever noticed, but when, whenever the Chinese people who worked at the restaurant had dinner together at the end of the night, and that was a tradition, um, they would have a very particular menu, which was very different from anything else that was on, on the menu. So things like sweet and sour, um, I, I think that was a particular <laughs> bastardized version of, you know, of a regional kind of food, Chinese food. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So I don't think you speak Chinese, do you? No, no. I, I came to Australia when I was three and my mother never encouraged us to speak Mandarin or Cantonese. So my sister actually still speaks both dialects because she was six years older. But, uh, you know, I, I forgot the language very quickly. Right, right, gotcha. Cool. Well, let's move on. How did you wind up in the film business from growing up in Perth? What was what was that um, route? 
It was a long, slow route. <laughs> long, yeah. long and winding road. It was a very slow, uh, uh, you know, like I, I had no idea that I wanted to work in film. I went to university. I went. I, had, I went, actually went to art school and did uh, photography and silkscreen printing. And I thought that for a while I'd be a visual artist. And um, but I always was fascinated by words. And like I wrote stories at high school. So. So I just thought, oh, well, I'll put the two and two together. And, you know, like I was in my mid-20s by the time I finished university and art school. And I'll, I'll see what film school's like. And so I went to film school, I went VCA for a year and then afters for a year. And um, even after going to VCA, I still wasn't sure that film was the right thing for me because, you know, I'd done well at university. So, like, academia was always appealing as well. Um I was interested in journalism uh, and then I went to afters and, and focused on screenwriting and it was the draw of writing which made me finally think, oh, I know where, where I can fit in in film. I mean, the thing was back then, um, you know, when you're an outsider to it, you don't realise just how many different components there are to the filmmaking process and how many different ways that you can be part of it. Contribute. Yeah. 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 And uh, so writing for me was the thing that I really loved. And so screenwriting became my avenue into filmmaking. Right. Something I did notice on IMDb that I can't believe, and maybe we talked about it years ago, but in 1989 you're credited in the art department or as art director on a TV movie called Arguing the Toss of a Cat starring my wife, Kate Sobrano. <laughs> Absolutely. That was my first job outside of film school. My my friends, Christine Sammers and Paul Brown, made this film and I was the um, production designer. I also did the costume um, and, and I was like the general dog's body yeah so I, I, met, I met Kate when that's incredible my god we were young we were young things I have a vague memory of you telling me that but I'd completely forgotten mm. it until I saw it there and I'm like oh my god she'll be so excited Joan Chen Kate Sobrano but <laughs> not only that I, I remember before um uh, uh just after um film school I was also making um pop clips with McGregor Knox and um oh, we were we did uh a couple of pop clips for I'm talking as well oh my god that is incredible yeah. Melbourne's a small place wow wow that's amazing okay gotcha so in Melbourne doing that then at some point you wind up in Sydney where where we, uh, where we first met and you were script editing and you script edited a feature I'd written called Godspeed, which, um, you know, is in the category of those kind of regrets that I wish I made it when I did because I had such a great cast attached to it and yourself. And uh, anyway, that's another whole story. <laughs> but that's, yes. the, that's, the, um, that's the project we met on. And then, um, and then pretty soon... I think maybe the next year I had another idea and I ended up making the feature Dust Off the Wings, which was- Which I loved. Thank you. Which was set in Bondi. And look, something else I've watched over the last couple of weeks was your feature, Walking on Water, which I saw like bits of it back in the day. I never saw the whole thing. Well, I just, I bought it off eBay a couple of weeks ago and just watched it. And it blew me away because it was kind of like a Bondi parallel universe kind of thing. The, you, this melting pot, you're all living so close to each other and you've got the common element of the water and the beach and that 
outlet and cleansing and beauty and all of that. And then, you know, inside there's all these intense relationships and grief and this and highs and lows. And it was kind of like I was watching, you know, the cousin to dust off the wings. So um, it kind of kind of blew my mind. It also made me long for the area because I'm in literally in hotel lockdown right now. I'm in 14-day hotel ISO in Sydney. I'm just like a breath away from the beach, but I'm so far away from it. So it was really, really interesting to watch that. And also another another powerful film, at the start of it, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, this is going to be tough. <laughs> but it totally, it lifted me up and just, you know, beautifully carried me through. And it reminded me, it reminded me of, of that era, particularly in the 80s and 90s in Sydney, which is where I was. And I lost a lot of friends through that time in the business and, um, and it was kind of heartbreaking, really, to, to bring back that era. Those guys, such talent. Anyway, can you just tell me a little bit more about that time and about the film? It was, um, I, I mean, I had dinner with my friend Roger Monk, uh, who was the writer of the film. And he just told me this story about what he had just recently gone through after the death of, of his best friend. And I was so moved by the story, I sort of said, you know, you should write that into a film. And he did. And we worked on it together for a number of years. And it's basically, you know, late 90s, HIV AIDS story. And it's pretty much what happens after someone dies and what happens to the friendships in that sort of bubble of grief that everyone goes through. And I mean, I related to it because had a lot of close friends who were dying back then and my partner, Michael, and I uh, went to a lot of funerals and I just made a documentary of William Young's monologue, Sadness, which was all about friends dying of HIV AIDS as well. So, so, you know, like we were kind of immersed in that world and it was such an intense time and I mean, weirdly, probably reminiscent of the COVID times now, <laughs> you know, like that yeah. kind of was that, that, that was the last pandemic that we lived through. Yeah. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I think it was a tribute to human resilience and friendship and the love that people can feel for each other, but also the, the bad behaviour that happens after people die, you know, like the pettiness and the squabbles and... Um, yeah, it, it was, again, you know, like making a film is such a privilege. I think in my early career, it, it never really struck me just how lucky you are to get to make a film because it's it requires so much money and so much time and so much effort. And I've been able to do it three times and, um, you know, each time has been like, well, it's lucky to do that. <laughs> you know, I don't know whether I'll get to do it again, but, you know, you can always hope. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Talking of um, movies, I read in an interview or something, you s mentioned that Mike Nichols was one of your favourite filmmakers and I was like, oh, cool, my favourite film is The Graduate. Same. And, um, the same. Oh, you can't? No way. Yeah, the same. Oh, my God, that is a trip. Yeah, it just blew my mind. That was kind of the film where I was, I was in LA. I remember exactly where I was. I was doing a screenwriting course at UCLA in LA. I'm in the room in a house that Steve Kearney, who was Kate's old flame, I know Steve, used yeah. to rent. Yeah. So he moved out. I moved in. I'm in the room. I'm like, okay, I'm in LA and I'm doing a screenwriting course. I got to watch some of the greatest films ever made. And I went out and, you know, bought about 
20, I can't remember whether they were VHS or, or DVDs, and um, The Graduate was one of them, and it just totally blew my mind, and that, more than anything, you know, made me want to make a film. And uh, there's an era of American cinema, um, you know, around Mike Nichols, Robert Altman, um, Martin Scorsese, uh, but but probably Robert Altman and Mike Nichols affected me more. The the kind of independent era where narratives didn't take conventional courses, where you know, like it felt very rich in truth, rich in the experience of life, and rich in the point of view of the filmmaker. And um, those films affected me so profoundly. And it was also, you know, there was another era um, later uh, in American fiction around the magazine Granter and people like Richard Ford, Tobias Wolfe, Raymond Carver. And that era as well particularly affected me as an artist. The, the stories of ordinary people dealing was sometimes ordinary situations, sometimes extraordinary situations, but dealing with them in a way which was both illuminating and familiar at the same time. And that's always been what's drawn me to a work of art, a drama piece, you know, a story. It's when you feel those two things that, you know, you you feel like, oh, someone has just diagnosed a condition which I suffer from, <laughs> you know, which is yeah. part of the human condition, you know, like, and then, um, yeah. and it's that sort of diagnostic power of drama which makes it so uh, illuminating to, you know, like it helps you understand things as a human being. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about working on the features, say the rehearsal process. Do you rehearse? Or do you not? And how do you approach some of those roles? Because they've been so personal to you. What's been your your um, preference? Well, you know, like I, I started making films with this idealised idea of like trying to have a couple of weeks of rehearsal with the actors so that everyone knew what was going to happen and etc. Um, of course, the longer you go on, the more you realise that that can be a bit of a pipe dream because as you go on, you also start to work with actors who are uh, more in demand and who have tight schedules and so sometimes you don't get to rehearse. You know, Ideally, I would always rehearse as a director, but my version of rehearsals is not, not to be too prescriptive but to just make sure that there is a common understanding of the text and the meaning of the scene before we try to film it, you know. And I think for me, that's all you need in a rehearsal because, again, what you learn is that no matter what happens in rehearsal, nothing actually counts until you turn the camera on. And so, um, so you can get a scene absolutely right in rehearsal and it can be absolutely wrong when the camera goes on if you don't get exactly that. So it's about understanding that. Yeah. And a similar approach as far as coverage goes. I'm, I'm guessing you don't sort of storyboard the whole thing out, that you kind of have a rough idea of what you want to do and then you get there on the day and you look at the actors having a crack, you block it through, work out what, and go from there with that the approach? Yeah, generally speaking, I'm far more organic than, you know, like I'm not someone who knows exactly where the actor should be and where the camera should be in a space. Um, I'm kind of open to, I, I, I guess I would direct in what I would say is I just try to listen to the best idea and respond to the performance 
as though I'm the first audience. So, you know, the best idea might come from the cinematographer or it might come from an actor or it might come from me. I don't always know. Um, and I would then watch the scene and, you know, see it on the monitor and respond to the actors as though, you know, like I'm the first person who's seen it and how I felt when that happened and, you know, just basically engage in a, a dialogue. So what I, the way I direct is not kind of rocket science. I, like, <laughs> I try to keep it as simple and as clear as possible. And um, what I do know is that, you know, I'm the person responsible for telling the story. So I have to know what has to be conveyed in that scene to make it earn its keep in the story. So I need to know what the plot points are. I need to know what the emotional beats are. And I need to work out a way of filming it that best conveys that information in a kind of emotional and visual way. And if I can do that, then it generally works. And <laughs> if I get it wrong, then, you, you know, you have to fix it in the edit. <laughs> Got the picture. <laughs> so let's talk about you. You were script editing. You made these films. Then you formed uh, your production company with Michael, your partner. Yep. And was that big and little films? We had big and little films for a fair time, um, and we, you know, we made stuff, and then. Then we joined forces with three Sydney producers, Penny Chapman, Helen Bowden and Helen Pankhurst, and we formed Matchbox Pictures. And I think that was Michael and my first serious foray into television. And we just had this spectacular first year where um, Matchbox just kind of sprinted into existence. Michael, Helen and Bowden and I made the slap. Penny and Helen Pankhurst made The Straits, plus we had a whole bunch of documentaries, plus I had a children's show, Nowhere Boys, which was being financed, plus we had a feature film, Lou, which Belinda Chaco wrote and directed, which came out, and we just had a, a telly movie saved with Claudia Carvan, which had just come out, and Penny had done this incredible documentary called Rampant. You know, like there was just this huge flurry of work within the first 12 months. And Off the, the chart. So the company just announced itself very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you did. You became um, the go-to production company, it, it seemed, and everything you did turned to gold, really. And uh, a lot of those, well, you know, Nowhere Boys, is that four or five series? Four seasons, yeah. Four, four seasons and uh, Glitch. That was three seasons, yeah. Three seasons. So, you know, certainly not one hit wonders either. So, there's a real um, broad range of genres and material there, which is, you know, must be awesome for you to um, not just be stuck in, you know, one pigeonhole. Two of my favourite series over the last several years have been Nowhere Boys and Glitch. I loved Nowhere Boys. It's my, yeah. It was my kind of, um, you know, like it was the first time I'd done a kid series and... I sort of realised how satisfying it was to make work for an 8 to 12 audience because they're so passionate about, you know, television. It was great to do an Australian show. Um, you know, I got to work in sort of high concept, you know, like with magic and stuff, which, you know, like I, I've been reading comic books since I was a kid. So, so yeah. it sort of satisfied a lot of creative impulses in me. And it yeah. also, you know, it sort of 
tackled genuine social issues, but in a very indirect way, which I also really liked. I liked the fact that yeah. it was basically uh, a fun show for kids. You know, that was what it was. Yeah. And it did spectacularly well. Like it won an Emmy, it won a BAFTA. It won, it's like one everything yeah. under the sun in terms of children's TV. So it was it was very satisfying, you know, it was a very satisfying experience. And Glitch, equally, you know, like being able to do like a show about people who come back from the dead and, you know, like I, I got to work with Lou Fox, who's this incredible writer, showrunner, um, and, you know, we have a great collaboration. So, yeah, they, they were both very happy shows. Yeah, no, great, great job. They, they also, like, delve into the spiritual domain, even though, you know, it's a kid's show, but they're smart shows. They go deep, yet they're perfectly pitched for their audience as well. Just on the spiritual sort of factor, do you consider yourself a spiritual person or are you just coming at it more from a science point of view and interested in that domain? I guess I would say I, I'm agnostic. I sort of don't know, but... My recurring fascination with uh, high concept and ghost stories and and uh, superpowers uh, uh, suggests that you know, like I have an interest in things that are not just material. So I, I guess I certainly believe in the human spirit, and you know, like I believe that there are things that we don't understand or can't explain and that aren't explained in purely material ways. And to quote myself from Nowhere Boys, I think that sometimes <laughs> magic is science that just hasn't been discovered. Um, and so I think that there is a kind of connection between the, the two. I don't, I don't think they're as binary and as opposite as they're often positioned. And I think certainly anyone who kind of gets heavily involved in science um, understands that, you know, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. So there's so much in science that is unexplained. I mean, my current fascination around quantum physics is the idea of spooky action at a distance, like how, how two things can affect each other and not be in the same space but still have a cause and effect on, on each other. I mean, that, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel you've lived before and you'll live again after this lifetime? I don't know about that, to be honest. I just haven't really thought about it. Um, I feel like because I, my nature is essentially agnostic, I feel like my focus right now needs to be on trying to live the best possible life that I can whilst you know I'm in this particular plane of existence and then whatever happens after will will happen and hopefully there will be a consciousness that acknowledges it or experiences it, but I don't know. I honestly don't know. Okay, cool. Let's go to something on the silly end of the scale after that deep conversation, um, Bogan Pride with Rebel Wilson. How, how good was that? I loved Bogan Pride, <laughs> yeah. That was my first comedy adventure. Uh, we were marriage-broked by Debbie Lee, who used to work at SBS and is now the head of development at Matchbox. And Rebel had been doing a whole bunch of sketch comedy up until that point with The Wedge and with Fat Pizza. That's right, with Fat Pizza. That was, that was yeah. what she was doing. And I was a huge fan of hers. You know, she was so out there and and so brave. And, um, yeah. and we got on really well. And I mean, we're still friends. Yeah, so I just helped her shape this narrative, which was really kind of like out there it's it's yeah, totally. but 
it's weirdly grounded because it was based on a lot of stuff from her own life. And I mean, I think the recurring theme in my work is that no matter what it is, there's something grounded in it. There's something real in it. And uh, I actually really love the fact that there was something real in Bogan Pride. (laughs) Oh, it was brilliant. I just watched the skit again yesterday of her at the Pran pool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's it's one of my favourite things that I've done, which, you know, at the time it kind of got probably like some of the worst reviews of, (laughs) of anything I've ever worked on. Like people either loved it or hated it. But I think that, you know, that's not a bad thing either. Like, yeah. I, I think that uh, I feel like it was ahead of its time. Oh, absolutely. And it, it must be really satisfying to see what she's gone on to do. Oh, yeah. No, Rebels, superstar. Yeah. Courageous, super talented. So, yeah, well done, mate. I mean, you know, you got to start it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I helped. Yeah. Yeah, helped. You totally helped. And, uh I'm just talking about some of my favourites. I mean, honestly, for people that aren't familiar with Tony's work, there's dozens and dozens of TV shows he's been a part of, whether it's writing, producing, directing, helping in some way. So check out his work. We don't have time to talk about them all today. But um, what about the Julian Assange story? I, I can't remember. Did you produce that? Were you involved with the writing? I was the executive producer and it was kind of... I think it was an original idea that I had to tell that story and um, I was involved in brokering it and, you know, I script edited it, Rob Connolly wrote it. And it was one of those things that, you know, I remember pitching it to Channel 10 and them just saying, great idea, we'll do it. (laughs) And it was like that. It just happened (laughs) overnight. (laughs) Wow. So, uh, um, you know, and then Rob, you know, did an amazing job and he brought in Rachel and Anthony LaPaglia and yeah, yeah, it it, it felt like um, a story that was very timely. Yeah, absolutely. It was powerful, really, really powerful. Um, We could talk about him for for hours, so I'm going to move on even though I want to ask more more about about that one. Um, Tell me about the family law. Are we in, what is it, the third Third season? Yeah. Fourth season now? It's just finished its third and final season. Okay. okay. Um, basically, my partner, Michael McMahon, had met Benjamin at a documentary festival and uh, had read Geisha and recommended that I read Geisha as well, which was um, his book about gay Asia. And then I read his memoir and it was just so beautiful and funny and sad and and I love the idea of telling a story about the consequences of a divorce on children, told from the point of view of this boy who was, you know, grappling with who he was and his own sexuality and, you know, who, who he was in the world. And the fact that they were all Chinese was sort of like absolutely the forefront and absolutely in the background. So, yeah, I sort of felt like it was a great way of telling a Chinese story without, you know, without labouring the fact that, oh, here's a Chinese story or, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's like any Aussie family. <laughs> yeah, they are absolutely like any other family except for the mother is just like a larger-than-life character. And, yeah, and um, you know, it took us a little while to sell the show, you know, because I, I guess, you know, there weren't very many avenues to sell comedy and that kind of comedy. Yeah. It's on SBS, isn't it? Yeah. But 
when we did, um, Ben and Sophie Miller, who was the showrunner of the show, and Kirsty Fisher, who was a script producer and a co-writer on the show, and Julie Exley, who was the producer, they all just did this amazing job of making this beautiful world together. And, you know, we had great directors as well. We had Jonathan Bro and Ben Chessel as directors and Sophie directed some episodes. Very, very funny. It's, it's gorgeous. It's life-affirming. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny and it's warm. And um, so I was kind of part of the initial conception of it. And then I sort of had to take a back seat because I've, as you probably guessed, I'm fairly time poor. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, it's always a bit of a juggle you know, between projects. Absolutely. Uh, Stateless, let's talk about that, uh, which you co-created with Kate Blanchett and- Elise McCready. That's right. And you producing it, are producing it? I was an executive producer on it, yeah. Kate and I and Elise were all executive producers on it. Okay. So, I've watched several episodes, incredible work, very powerful work. In doing the research for this, I wasn't aware that there was so many stateless people Mm. on the planet, like millions. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and how that project came about and working with Kate Blanchett? Well, it was actually Kate's original idea and Kate and Elise had gone to school together and, and have been close lifelong friends and they dragged me into it. And I had made a telemovie uh, with Claudia Carvin could say it. Claudia and Osama Sami were in it. And it was about a refugee advocate and her relationship with a refugee. She's trying to get out of detention. And so I was familiar with the territory. And so we looked at several stories and we looked at the real life events from the time. And we all felt very passionately that we wanted to make a piece that spoke to Australia's very uncomfortable relationship with refugees. But we wanted to do it in a way which was not sort of dogmatic or sort of, you know, just represented one point of view. We wanted to sort of understand and show a system which we felt was in some ways broken and the effect that it had on the people who worked within the system. Yeah. So, you know, Kate and Elise and I, sort of brainstormed the original idea. I brought on Belinda Chaco, who I worked with very closely, and she came in as a script producer and a co-writer with Elise. And then Elise, Belinda and I started plotting the whole show and putting the series together whilst uh, in the background, Kate and I were financing it and trying to work, trying to sort of package it. Even though, you know, we had Kate Blanchett involved, It still took a while to get the financing together because it was a show about mental health and refugees. You know, they're not not like popular go-to entertainment subjects. But, you know, we sort of doggedly persisted and then a big shift came when um, Yvonne Strahovski joined the cast and then Kate was always going to be in it, but she was only ever going to play a small role. And then we had uh, Dominic West step in and Asha Keddy and Jai Courtney and, you know, like just this phenomenal cast stepped in. And then once the casting started coming together, then the financing started coming together. And um, the show has done spectacularly well, like Netflix bought it and it's doing incredibly well on Netflix and has spoken to people all around the world. So, you know, we we couldn't be happier. Yeah, it's powerful work, mate. Yeah, I I mean, the thing I think I'm most proud of is the fact that as the series goes on, it gets better and better and better. 
And it's kind of like a concise history of onshore detention in Australia and kind of why it went offshore. So, you know, it helps you understand an Australian history, which I think that, you know, that's one of the things we can do in drama. We can we can be part of a broader cultural conversation. You know, we, we just do it in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you seem to just have hit after hit, and I know I know there's great highs, but I know there's low lows. I mean, just for, for others out there, there are constant knockbacks and projects that fall over that you put your heart and soul into and they never see the light of day. Aside from just creating and moving on to the next project, how have you dealt with those barriers and what advice would you have for other aspiring writers, filmmakers, artists out there? Well, I can tell you now for a fact that nothing gets easier and that no matter what you do, there will always be a problem the next time and it'll be a problem that you hadn't anticipated. It'll, you know, like no project is easy. From my experience, I've never made anything that from go to woe has not had some kind of drama that is not on the screen. I mean, Your job is to try to keep the drama on the screen as much as possible. I think what experience teaches you is that, you know, most situations are manageable somehow. You know, you you have to be agile. I think I'm a pretty good problem solver. And so that stood me in good stead over the years. You do have to think out of the square sometimes, out of the box, and you have to be prepared to respond very quickly to problems. That's all I can sort of suggest really because, you know, something terrible or something difficult is going to happen on every single project. That's just the nature of it because you're bringing together a whole bunch of combustible variables, you know, like you're putting nitro and glycerin together because you want it to go boom. You just want it to go boom on the screen, but you're still putting nitro and glycerin together. And sometimes that can go off in your hands. That's that's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of like nonstop problem solving, directing and and putting things together, isn't it? So if you, if you don't like doing that, then, um, you know, look for another outlet. <laughs> you just have to be prepared, you know, and well, you, you just have to try not to get too overwhelmed by it, you know. Because it's just what happens. No, no, that's right. So if you were a young fella starting out and you wanted to write, you wanted to produce, you wanted to direct, would you suggest the the film school route or would you just say because the technology, the cameras, the editing software, everything, it's so accessible and cheap now, would you just say, hey, just go out and make films and get experience and just go for it? I think there are two things. I think certainly make things. But I think before you make something, have something to say. That's the most important thing. And I think sometimes people just want to be filmmakers without actually wanting to make films. <laughs> you know, like, I think that we are in the job of content creation. And so I think, you know, whenever I encounter a, a new filmmaker and I'm at the point in my career where I try to help people as much as I can, it really just is about, well, what do you have to say? What, what is the story that you have to tell? Whether it's your own story or another story that you've heavily researched or something that you feel deeply invested in, that's what it is. It's the story. And if you kind of want to be a filmmaker more than you want to tell a story, then I think you're in trouble. Good advice. So, mate, what are you up to now? Um, I know you've been working on clickbait. Yes. You know, there's probably five other things you're working on right now. Just give us an insight into what you're working on now and um, 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So I got six episodes into this show for Netflix called Clickbait, which is um, like a social media thriller. And um, then we got shut down by COVID. So <laughs> we're desperately trying to start up again. And hopefully soon, you know, like I look at the numbers every day and and uh, the COVID numbers every day and I sort of think, oh, that's good. And then I think, oh, no, that's bad. So we want Victoria to open up again. Yep. And then I'm doing another show about last season's bushfires for the ABC. And I'm working with Belinda Chaco on that and a whole bunch of other people who I dearly respect. And then, you know just a raft of development and hopefully one of these things will land. You don't know what, what it might be. You know, you just have to go in there and, you know, go into bat for the things that you care about. Yeah, cool. And what about the US? Well, I know you're making a Netflix show here, so you probably don't need to go over there, but has there been the temptation to move over there and make big movies and TV over there or are you just happy getting to do what you want to do here and be at home? I'm trying to find a way to straddle both, like to make bigger work, but still stay here to do it. Yeah. So, you know, like that's a work in progress. So we'll see whether I can make that happen or not. But that's the idea. Good on you, mate. Well, look, thanks for your time today. And thanks for the wonderful work and being one of the nicest guys in the biz as well. Oh, thank you so much, Lee. Great to talk. Good on you, mate. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode. If you'd like to dive into your very own Festival of Tony, then head to imdb.com, otherwise known as the Internet Movie Database. Type in Tony Ayres, press search, and you'll be sorted for must-watch viewing for quite some time. Next week's episode is another cracker. My guest is Jim Meskimen, otherwise known as the world's greatest impressionist. Jim's ability is staggering but it's the wisdom which imbues his work which impresses me most. Remember, it's good for your soul to rate, review, subscribe and share. Hope you have a great week and live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. 